I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, my friend. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And it finds me on the road in Pennsylvania working accidents. And where are you today? Oh, I just got back to Massachusetts. I was traveling last week. You'll be happy to hear that I'm batting 50% on the uh, remove your face mask before you put the oxygen mask on. So on one flight, they clearly said that. On the second flight, they omitted it. And I want to thank uh, all of our listeners who are riding on airplanes over the last several weeks who are sending us emails giving us their feedback that uh, some of the uh, the briefings that they've seen some people are doing it and some people aren't i mean that's you know and, and i'm not going to continue to harp on it i just i'm trying to bring awareness to the fact that we have got to standardize this kind of stuff the this last flight i was on the good thing was is that it wasn't very full and uh, the flight attendant did, in fact, go through the entire briefing and did make mention of it. So, you know, I don't know if it's a policy thing or just, you know, at the whim of uh, whoever's doing the briefing. But, you know, the big thing is for our listeners and, and everyone else in the public, and that is just remember that the mass that drops from the ceiling is not pressure breathing. That is, the oxygen is not forced into uh, your your lungs like the flight crew's mask that is pressure breathing and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, you do have to have basically a clear path between that oxygen mask that drops and your nose and mouth. And the only way to do that is to take off your personal mask. It is one of those things where, you know, you hopefully will never need it. Hopefully it'll never happen, but we know that pressurization problems do occur, mass do drop, so just be aware. So, And I know that you, my friend, have an honor <laughs> that you were recently bestowed, and that is the Laura Tabor Award, which is a very well-recognized, prestigious award for your many years of contribution to aviation safety. And I'm reading about this and I'm thinking, what do you know? What a humble guy. He doesn't say anything. I got to be an investigator to find this out. You know, it just, uh, I'm very proud of you, my friend. It's a, uh, it's a great honor. And uh, I'm glad that uh, that honor went to you this year. No, thank you. It was a surprise. 
And, I, you know, I've never been one to jump up and down with awards, but uh, it, was a, it was a surprise to me. Well, I'll jump up and down for you because it's well-deserved. Uh, you put your heart and soul into, uh, into aviation safety, and uh, I think that this is uh, somebody has now finally recognized your contributions, which is, which is outstanding. So congratulations. Now, the bigger question, John, given the fact that, uh, you know, this podcast uh, is being recorded around Halloween, what'd you dress up as? The witch. You didn't see my picture on Facebook? No. Were you the wicked witch or the nice witch? The wicked witch. <laughs> I put a posted a picture of myself in class with the witch's uh, hat and all that stuff on. There you go. Hopefully that was just appearance and not attitude. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Although there's some in Washington that might say it's an attitude. Yeah, I know. I know, absolutely. Well, uh, given the fact that uh, we are talking about Halloween and we have recorded uh, our podcast that set up this particular series regarding American Eagle Flight 4184, which was an ATR-72 that unfortunately crashed in Roselawn, Indiana on Halloween night in 1994, uh, this is part two of that discussion where we get into dissecting the cockpit voice recorder and talking about not only the actions of the crew and things like that, but also talk about a little bit of controversy that brewed out of this investigation and particularly the cockpit voice recorder with the French who were acting as technical advisors during the course of the investigation. Um, they, they had some differing opinions, and of course you and I will talk about that in the end of uh, this discussion, but um, that created a, a lot of animosity and, and some heartburn between the two investigative authorities just because we saw the discussions that we're going to dissect in the cockpit voice recorder from two different perspectives. And um, while the French took a very hard stand and actually wrote a submission, you know, really hammering the NTSB for what they believed were omissions, in the long run, the information was incorporated in the board's analysis of the accident and reflected in the probable cause. Not to the extent that the French wanted it, but again, we'll talk about that later on. Okay. Well, since we promised everybody the voice recorder analysis, let's get into it. Uh, before we do, though, we should mention our sponsors. Pamer has been a sponsor for us since the beginning. Sometime about five or six weeks ago, Avemco Insurance came on. And as you know, uh, Avemco was uh, what I consider to be a first-class uh, operation as far as insurance for general aviation aircraft. They've been around for 60 years. Yeah, when I, I just happened to be uh, looking at Facebook because I'm in a bunch of these different aviation groups. And one of the things that I noticed over the last couple of months is that there are a lot of folks that apparently have some disposable income and are buying airplanes. So they're posting on all of these group websites for the various types of aircraft that uh, that I belong to in these groups, whether it's Piper Aero or, or Cessna 182 group or whatever, that there are a lot of people shopping insurance. 
especially for lower time pilots. And of course, I always respond, Avemco. And we have a deal with Avemco that if um, if you do call them and you talk to them about insurance and you mention our show, Flight Safety Detectives, they allow you a special bonus, and that is? A 5% discount. So every little bit helps. And so if you are in the market for shopping insurance for uh, for your aircraft, uh, definitely give them a Vemco a call. They've been my insurance carrier for a very long time. They've always done me well um, when I've had a couple of claims, minor claims. This is an opportunity to save some money by mentioning our show. Okay. With that being said, we'll probably talk about it again before the end of the show. But any first-class operation is good in my book, even if it might be a tad bit more expensive. All right, with all of that, let's talk about the flight recorder on this airplane. And, and I see a lot of decision-making or decisions that weren't made in when I read this transcript. And as we've talked about in the past, John, you know, when you read the words on a piece of paper, you can't really get the gravity of the situation. There is no emotion. The board does not transcribe this and put in commentary about, you know, any kind of emotional response that one or both of the pilots may have had or anybody else that's recorded in the cockpit. You don't really know what activity is taking place at the time they're making these comments. And because you don't have that emotion, it becomes very difficult sometimes to try and convey the urgency of of actions versus just complacency, distraction, normal conversation, and things like that. So as we go through this, I think it'll be important for us to discuss some of the real poignant things in the setup to this accident. Of course, we talked about the fact that the airplane had come out of Indiana, heading for Chicago. The weather was lousy going into the Chicago area. They had reduced the arrival rates, and um, this airplane, uh, 4184, got off the ground late. It was held on the ground in Indianapolis. They finally got off the ground shortly after 3 o'clock, but then were given a hold about 60 miles southeast of, uh, of Chicago over a place called Roselawn, Indiana. And this is where really this cockpit voice recorder transcript picks up is they're, they're already getting into, into the hold. They were at 16,000 feet. They were given a clearance down to 10. They get down to 10. As they level off, they're given the, the hold clearance at the Lucid intersection. And so in the conversation that's being recorded, the crew is talking not only amongst themselves, but now a flight attendant had come up into the cockpit at some point prior to where the transcript starts. And she is just in a casual conversation with uh, with the two pilots. In the background, the sound of music is heard. And that's because one of the pilots had dialed up on the ADF, which... Uh, it's the automatic direction finder. Basically, it is uh, an AM radio station radio that we can use as crude navigation to go to a signal source. But a lot of it is typical AM radio stations. So 
apparently he dialed up uh, the frequency for a radio station and that music is playing in the background, apparently on an overhead speaker, since the um, uh, cockpit area microphone likely picked it up. Plus, it was being piped through his headset. And so at uh, 1528, and all these times are, are local, the airplane is now coming into uh, into the hold. They've uh, leveled its 10,000 feet, and they're basically running 10-mile legs. But the conversation that takes place is with the flight attendant, and she's asking about, you know, is that like stereo radio? You guys don't have a hard job at all. We're back there slugging with these people. And so this is a very casual conversation. But in the meantime, this airplane is in a weather event that is between broken layers of clouds. And because of the temperature spread, as the airplane is moving in its holding pattern, sometimes it's engulfed in clouds and then breaks out and then goes back into clouds during various portions of the holding pattern circuit. And this will eventually be extremely important in the investigation of this accident because the basis of this accident was the accumulation of a form of ice on the airplane that resulted in a loss of control. You know, it's ice just builds up very quietly, very slowly. You don't even notice it. You have to pay attention. And if you lose that attention span in those kinds of conditions, the outcome's not good. And one of the things that uh, was brought, that was discussed, it was discussed amongst all of the folks that were working on this investigation, not only from the NTSB, but from the parties to include uh, the folks from the BEA and ATR and the DGCA in France, because you will see in this transcript, if you pull it down and read the report, that occasionally there are commentaries in the CVR that say miscellaneous non-pertinent conversation between captain and flight attendant continues, and it gives a specific time. Now, while the content of that discussion, the board management determined that, one, that kind of commentary to be printed did not benefit anyone, and two, that it could have been embarrassing to certain parties just because of its content. So rather than explicitly state it, they characterized it with non-pertinent conversation and they put who that conversation was taking place. Now, the French took exception to that saying it was necessary for that conversation to be uh, transcribed verbatim and put down in the transcript. But regardless of what was said, the time block is identified, and it is evident that that kind of conversation, as you just discussed, John, could be a distraction and prevent or at least mitigate the efforts of one or both pilots from monitoring, in this case, the icing conditions that the airplane was operating in during the course of flying that holding pattern. You know, you get into a holding pattern for 10, 15, 20 an hour flying this racetrack in the sky, it's incredibly boring. And it, it takes a lot of uh, willpower to stay uh, focused, 
during that time. And we expect that of our pilots, but not everybody lives up to those expectations. And the, the other issue that came up was sterile cockpit rule. Now, the sterile cockpit rule is, is a regulation that below 10,000 feet, that no conversation other than that conversation that is pertinent to the operation of the aircraft will be had between the two flight crew members for the very reason that the feds want you to stay plugged in. They want you to stay engaged in the operation of the aircraft to avoid complacency and distraction and things like that. The question came up, where does sterile cockpit rule go into effect? At 10,000 feet or below 10,000 feet? Yeah, the rule says below. Below. So that means you can be at 9,999 feet and have it in effect. These guys are holding at 10,000 feet. So that became um, a discussion point as well because the flight attendant remained in the cockpit for, when you look at the transcript, it seems like quite a while, but in fact, it was only just several minutes. But during that period of time, the airplane is flying in an icing event and the, air, the crew does have ice protection on, but even though they they have the ice protection on the airplane. It is basically a tacit trust that, okay, I've turned it on, therefore it's doing its job. And the, the controver- one of the controversial points was, but they weren't monitoring its effectiveness. Yes, and just assume that it's working. You know, we know that it was working and, and the events that took place were, were out of the capabilities of the de-icing system on this airplane. They assumed it would be working. It could not have been working. You need to pay attention when you're flying. I mean, aviation, there's no job that's insignificant in aviation. Whether you're flying an airplane and and your antenna should get much more sensitive as you're flying into more and more difficult situations. The same thing with other people. The maintenance people need to pay attention to their jobs, even though they're out there in the snow and the rain sometimes, and nighttime freezing. The people who load the airplane. Loading the mail and the freight, making sure it's in the right place. Make sure they double-check the uh, the numbers and the weight that they give to the dispatcher so they do the proper weight and balance. All of these jobs have to fit together like a, a hand and a glove. And it also boils right down to the GA side, too. I mean, it, you pull up to a, an FBO and say, give me 30 gallons on a side. You're assuming that this person is going to put 30 on each side. And I've seen far too many pilots at the FBOs that I hang around with that do just that and walk away and go in and get something to eat and go to the bathroom and do whatever. And they just assume that that's what happened. What if, they, if this, usually it's a young kid, what if he put 40 and 20? Yeah. You know, you got to pay attention. And going forward in this CVR transcript, the transcript started at uh, 1528 local. Five minutes into uh, this transcript, Of course, the flight attendant is still there. They're bantering back and forth between the two crew members and the flight attendant. And there was another block at 1531 to 1533, which was about a two-minute block, where, again, non-pertinent pilot and flight attendant conversation continues. These will subsequently add up in the long run. But, again, this is at least evidence of a little bit of complacency 
and a, a little bit of distraction because this key point starts to evolve shortly thereafter because they're in the holding pattern. They're, they're um, holding it around 170 knots, and the captain makes the statement, man, this thing gets a, a high deck angle in these turns. Now, the airplane was on autopilot. It doesn't have auto throttles, but it does have altitude hold. They're at 170 knots. They're basically dragging around this holding pattern. And, of course, as you lose lift in the course of a turn, you got to pull the nose up to maintain that altitude. So the autopilot is compensating for it. And the captain makes the statement, man, this thing gets high deck angles in these turns. And, of course, the co-pilot, who in this particular instance was the flying pilot, even though the autopilot is flying. And the captain says, yeah, we're just wallowing in the, in the air right now. And the first officer says, you want 15 degrees of flaps. Now, by putting the flaps down, John, as we know, two things are going to happen. Uh, you put the flaps at 15, you get the deck angle or the, the pitch attitude of the airplane to come down. But what's the benefit of putting those flaps down? It's to increase, it actually increases or gives you better stall margin because you now have those 15 degrees of flaps. And while that made the ride more comfortable, and of course it, it did add a level of safety, it was actually creating a disastrous situation that the crew really didn't have any idea was occurring out there. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. And so they put the flaps down, they get the nose down, says uh, the captain said at 1533 do you want to kick him in it'll bring the nose down and the first officer says sure so you hear the flap handle being moved and so now the nose of the airplane is in a better position it's lower on the horizon and the quote deck angle is better but you hear the automatic trim that's the autopilot trim in the airplane as well again the the flight attendant is still up front talking to the two pilots while all of this is playing out and they get into a discussion about rain and it was the flight attendant who said what were the what were they telling me about that blanking something about rain they always trick the hiring people about rain some little person that talks now in these in these cvr transcripts again we see it over and over again, John. Humans don't talk in complete sentences when you're having a, a conversation. It's fragmented a lot of times because people are talking over the top of each other, cutting each other off, or trying to finish one's thoughts and things like that. So with this flight attendant, what I just read, that comes out of a, a just a, an incomplete thought that started you know, previous to this. So some of these things get very disjointed and as an investigator, you have to try and glue these statements together to, in context to make any sense. Yes, yeah, so that's it gets even worse when you come into a hangar. In fact, the FAA used to call me the interpreter sometimes, especially one particular flight standards inspector, a management inspector from New York City. He called me the, the interpreter over and over because of the way that the guys talking to hang a floor, a normal person were to go in and hear them, they'd think they are a bunch of bandits and they're crazy. It's really just the, the poor use of the English language, chopping it up. And people know what it means at work there, but a normal person goes in there and they're all 
all crazy because, wow, I can't believe people behave like this and talk like that. And as we continue into this uh, CVR transcript, again, now for the next five-minute period, the pilots still have the flight attendant up there, and then there is another characterization. It's a four-minute period, 1534 to 1538. Again, non-pertinent pilot and flight attendant conversation continues. So now, basically, for at least 10 minutes of this transcript, and we know that the flight attendant had been in the cockpit a little longer than what the transcript describes, is they've got this conversation going on. Meanwhile, they're in this holding pattern. They're in and out of the clouds. They are picking up ice on the aircraft during the course of them transiting the holding pattern circuit. And they receive a message from center at 1538, giving them an expected further clearance time. So the crew, the the captain does respond. Okay, expect further clearance at 2200, which is on the hour. So now that is about 20 minutes from the time they receive that that radio call that they're going to get another or at least an update on their clearance, whether they can head into Chicago or they're going to have to continue to hold. And again, there's another iteration of non-pertinent pilot and flight attendant conversation continues. That goes from 1538 to 1542. So again, there's another four-minute period. So now we're up to almost 15 minutes of conversation with the flight attendant in the front, the two pilots. They are flying in icing conditions. They haven't talked about icing conditions. They haven't talked about the ice protection and its effectiveness. And this, in and of itself, presents a situation where are they really plugged in and monitoring, doing their respective jobs? whether it's watching what's going on with the airspeed, the autopilot's flying the airplane, so it masks a lot of bad things that are going to take place aerodynamically with the airplane. You don't have any any tactile feedback because you don't have your hands on the control yoke. Yes, letting the autopilot. You know what's a shame as you're, as you're going through this? I'm thinking about the Kogan flight in Buffalo, New York, and how, how much similarity there is between the two. And... I often wonder how many missed opportunities that we've had. We've killed a bunch of people here in, in Roselawn, and here we go years later, and we have a very similar accident again and kill a whole bunch of people there. We just just uh, don't get it right. We just don't get the, the benefit from the accidents like we need to. Yeah, and, and so now, shortly after um, that comment about uh, the flight attendant, she actually leaves the cockpit at 1542 and the board made a statement in the cvr that said that from this point forward after she left the cockpit that all of the transmissions both in the cockpit and the radio transmissions now appear in the cvr transcript in their entirety so now it's the focus it's the two pilots it's the dissection of their respective activities in the cockpit in the last about 15 minutes of flight as we get into uh, the sequence of events that resulted in the loss of, uh, of the airplane and 68 people. And so now they're talking amongst themselves. 
they get a message from dispatch. Uh, they're sending a message talking about basically giving them an update about what's going on with uh, their holding time and the ex- the expected further clearance time. And so there is just this nominal banter back and forth between both pilots. And, um, and that goes on. Uh, the, the first officer at 1544 says, should I tell him how much fuel we got? The captain says, sure. So they're punching off some critical information to dispatch. And all this whole time that the flight attendant was in the cockpit and they're talking, and even now where it's just the two pilots, there is still the sound of music playing in the background in the headsets. And that in and of itself is a potential distraction just because you got that. And we don't know how loud it was, but it was evident that it was prominent enough to be identified when the CVR was being read out and annotated in the CVR transcript. Yes. You know, that's just all these distractions that we face every day, driving, trying to text, trying to listen, trying to talk on the phone. Uh, they're all the same in the cockpit, and they just take your mind away from what you should be thinking about. You know, here we have these guys, they get the radio playing, they were talking to the flight attendant, and they're flying in icing conditions. I mean, the weather's bad enough that they've got to fly around and make circles because we can't get the airplanes landing, and it's it's just, uh, I guess it's human nature, but it's just scary that that we can be lulled into that kind of uh, complacency so easily. Especially in in critical weather situations, or at least what, and again, that's a matter of interpretation. Apparently they didn't, you know, really give it the gravity of the situation that is, yeah, they were in and out of some broken layer clouds. They didn't perceive it as a threat. And maybe that escalated a little bit of uh, more, a little more complacency and, and, the fact that, well, yeah, we can talk, but it's not really a distraction versus, you know, on a severe clear day or even if it was uh, really rocking and rolling with convective activity, that may have changed their perception, their attitudes and everything else. The captain makes a, a PA announcement telling people in the back about the fact that they are in a uh, holding pattern, that they expect to be in that holding pattern for the next 20 minutes and he's explaining why they're in this holding pattern and that, you know, yeah, we'll do whatever we can to get you guys on the ground so you can make your connections and things like that. So that takes place at uh, 1545. And again, then the two pilots start talking about the information that has, is being uploaded and downloaded to, uh, to dispatch with regard to the status of the aircraft and, of course, the expect further clearance time. And, and again, this kind of communication between the two pilots, um, again, they're focused on the airplane. They're talking about things that they're, uh, they're discussing with dispatch. But because we don't know what other activities are going on in that cockpit, we don't know what they're looking at. We don't know how attentive they are to looking out the window to see if there is still ice building up on the airplane, looking back at the wing as far as they can, or looking at maybe the windshield wiper bolt. That's always a good indicator because it's right out in front of the pilots. And typically ice will build up on it, and a lot of pilots use that. 
to uh, to gauge how much ice and what the rate of accumulation is. We don't know what other activities are going on other than the fact that these guys are talking to them uh, amongst themselves, trying to send messages down to dispatch. And uh, they spent quite a long time talking about uh, this ACARS and, and the messaging and that kind of stuff. And And again, this goes on for almost four minutes. And nobody's talking about the conditions. No. No. And and they did make a comment about the fact that, you know, with the flaps down at 15, with the deck angle being down, it is, quote, much nicer. <laughs> okay, that's great. Now, there was a statement at 1548. We couldn't identify who it was, whether it was captain or first officer, that said, I'm showing some some ice now. Now, again, that's just a comment. I'm showing some ice now. We don't know where that ice is. We don't know how much of the ice that's referring to. And we don't know who's making that observation. And, again, they talk about – I mean, it's, it's, it's a brief comment. It's only a two-second discussion. The – Captain then makes a, a comment. I'm sure that once they let us out of the hold and forget they're down, we'll get the overspeed. That is a reference to the fact that they're already planning for the distraction to cause them to forget that they got the flaps at 15. And if they start start the descent, they're going to pick up speed very quickly. And, of course, they're going to get the overspeed warning. And, of course, they laugh about that. So. They kind of are plugged in to the configuration of the airplane, but again, it's more casual than professional when it comes to exactly the method uh, by which they're going to operate the airplane. And uh, and again, they go into this non-pertinent conversation between the two of them where uh, they're just bantering back and forth. Um, the flight attendant calls forward and again the the crew just goes into this discussion of you know talking to the flight attendant now on the interphone and um and this goes on now for about five minutes where it's really non-pertinent conversation to the operation of the airplane and it really is more about just you know shooting the bull yeah and you can clearly see why the french would be concerned about it because it is a long period of time, it's about 15 minutes, give or take a little bit, that they're talking about all sorts of other things except flying the airplane. Yep. And the critical point being this ice, they make more of a passing comment than a discussion about the ice that they are seeing. Yes. Yes. And of course, they, well, they can see a good portion of their wings on this particular airplane. Unlike some other ones. The very outboard section, it's really hard to see the inboard, but they can see a bit of the outboard section. But if they're in the clouds, that part of the wing can be obscured. And plus, we now know that the ice that we're talking about was far enough back that they probably couldn't have seen it anyway. Yeah, we're going to talk about that here in a second. But for the next five minutes, again... These guys are talking to the flight attendant in the back. They're making some comments. Uh, they're talking about turning the temperature down in the back. 
turning the air conditioner up or whatever. And this banter goes back and forth again for almost five minutes. And then the captain goes to the back of the airplane. Now he went back to use the restroom, but he's on the interphone now, leaving the first officer up front. He's on the interphone with him talking about, and this is really what got, I think all of us spooled up, but particularly the French on the interphone he says, okay, well, here, Orlando wants to talk to you. That's flight attendant. And so the first officer is listening, and Orlando does. Hello? Hey, bro. Yeah, getting busy with the ladies back here. Oh. And, of course, you know, there's sound of some laughter. Yeah, so if I don't make it up there within the next, say, 15 or 20 minutes, you know why. So there is this lighthearted, very casual very complacent attitude going on while they're droning around in this holding pattern unbeknownst to them they are picking up ice on the on the airframe of the airplane and you got one guy in the in the cockpit who's left to monitor he's listening to music and again it's one of those things where the captain is standing in the back just you know hanging out with the flight attendants rather than being up front and, and being plugged into the operation of the airplane. Wow. Yeah, they spent more time being concerned with the temperature in the back of the airplane than they are with flying the airplane. So the captain is back there for some period of time. I think it's about three minutes. He finally comes back up to the cockpit at around 15:54 you can hear he gets back into the seat because uh, this you can hear the electric motor as he's repositioning the seat uh, you can hear him putting on his seatbelt and then he puts his headset back on that has a hot microphone so you can hear the bumping around so now he's back in in position and again they start talking about whether or not there's any messages coming up from dispatch and about the delay going into into Chicago and that goes on for about two minutes and again it's non-pertinent discussion now here comes another reference at 1555 we still got ice that's a critical statement John because the statement about three minutes prior four minutes prior was I'm showing some ice or I've, you know, I, I see some ice. This comment is, we still got ice. Now, there is no discussion amongst the pilots other than a statement. There are no discussions about how much ice, where is it building up, whether or not they still have the ice protection on, should they turn the ice protection on. None of those conversations have taken place. It is just two statements. We got ice. We still got ice. So that's seven minutes the aircraft is building ice. And we don't know how effective the ice protection is, whether it's even on or not. But they make this statement, and then they go back to other things, screwing around with uh, the ACARS printer, looking to see if they got any messages from dispatch. Now, at 1556, center calls the crew and says, Eagle Flight 184, descend 
descend to maintain 8,000. Meanwhile, the captain is on company frequency trying to get a hold of dispatch. And that conversation is going on with the captain and dispatch over the next minute. And again, center calls the crew, Eagle Flight 184, descend and maintain 8,000 feet. The first officer finally responds down to 8,000, Eagle Flight 184. Now, whether or not he was plugged in, he was distracted trying to hear what the captain is saying to dispatch or the background music that was playing is has become a distraction or at least blocked out some of the transmission. But it took center calling them twice to get their attention. Now, of course, the first officer being the flying pilot dutifully starts down. And as he is starting down, the uh, the captain basically says, are we out of the hold? And uh, he's and the first officer responds, no, uh, we're just going down to 8,000 feet. They said it'll be about 10 more minutes. So the captain is wrapping up his discussion with dispatch, talking about ACARS and, and that kind of stuff. And the airplane is on its way down to 8,000 feet. Now, one of these critical points is at 1557, where there is the sound of repeating beeps similar to overspeed warning, and it continues for 4.6 seconds. What do you think that is? The flaps. It was the flaps, the thing that they talked about 10 minutes prior that they were going to do. And in fact, the first officer responds as soon as he hears that, oops. Now, I mean, you can dissect that to say, these guys were just out of it. They were just, you know, it was too casual in that cockpit. It wasn't the the operating environment of a highly disciplined crew during that period of time. Because the captain responds, I knew we'd do that. Well, again, I mean, you talked about it 10 minutes before, and you just blanked it out over that 10 minutes? I mean, how plugged in are you? And, of course, the first officer is saying, yeah, the autopilot is trying to keep it at 180. That's great. It's trying to keep it at 180. But you have all of these other things going on. And you get the the airplane is the autopilot is trimming the pitch because the sound of the wooler, which is the, the pitch trim in motion, is heard multiple times on the CVR. And as uh, as that continues to sound one of the key elements was at 1557 sound of three sets of repetitive rapid triple chirps similar to the autopilot disconnect warning now that's critical because all of these actions up until this point were on the autopilot so the ice that was building up on the airframe if it was creating any kind of aerodynamic deficiencies performance deficiencies were being masked because the autopilot was compensating for it. There was no direct feedback. Now, this is not a hydraulically boosted airplane with regard to the flight controls. It's basically torque tubes and cables. So you can get some pretty good tactile feedback if things are starting to buzz, like the aileron, because you got uh, ice building up, or if there's an airframe buffet and things like that. So at 1557.33, you get the sound of the autopilot disconnecting, which apparently 
wasn't commanded because the first officer responded with an expletive. And then, of course, uh, there is a, on the cam channel, single horn similar to the altitude alert, which means they're off their altitude. Unknown comment from a pilot, we don't know which one, says okay. And then on hot B, which apparently is uh, a uh, reference to the first officer's microphone, intermittent heavy irregular breathing starts and continues to the end of the recording. This was a critical turning point in this flight because the autopilot went off uncommanded and the airplane is now gyrating, not being commanded or its movements are not being commanded by the first officer. And it is apparent that now somebody is flying, hand flying the airplane and it's taking a lot of effort to try and control the airplane. Oh, boy. I can move back to what I said a few minutes ago about Kogan. You know, just flying along, fat, dumb, and happy with the autopilot on, and suddenly it tips off, and you've got to get back into the game. And they don't even know where the game is. And this part of it, John, you know, just reading the CVR, you don't know what these guys are going through until you marry it up with the flight data recorder. So let me just read the, the conversation that's going on back and forth. There is no emotion. There is nothing. It's just words on a paper. One of the pilots says, oh, blank, which is another expletive. The captain responds, okay. You hear a single horn, again, similar to the altitude alert go off. And then on the cam, which is the area microphone, it's annotated sound of growl, G-R-O-W-L, starts and continues to impact growl being is that someone moaning or or straining or whatever the captain follows that that comment uh, by the board with all right man and then he starts coaching the first officer okay mellow it out so it's obvious that the captain has not taken control of the airplane with whatever actions the airplane is going through he's trying to coach the first officer through it there is the sound of uh, overspeed warning that starts and continues to impact. The first officer is responding to the captain. Okay. The first, and the captain is saying, mellow it out, mellow it out. Okay. The captain says, okay, autopilot's disengaged. First officer says, okay. And again, the captain responds, okay, nice and easy, nice and easy. They eventually get terrain, whoop, whoop. There is an expletive by the first officer at 1557. The recording ends one second later. Now, when you read that, it's okay. These guys, yeah, they, they're fighting the airplane to an extent. They're trying to get it under control. The captain is coaching the first officer through trying to do whatever is necessary to recover this airplane. But it really doesn't tell you what's going on. What is evident is that when you marry this up, with the flight data recorder, you see that this airplane is out of control. So, you know, in reading the cockpit voice recorder, you don't really know what this crew is fighting until you marry this data up with the flight data recorder data. And you see that the airplane has rolled uh, initially almost inverted. That's what knocked the autopilot offline, that it rolled the 77 degrees wing low, right wing low 
the first officer who's the flying pilot of course puts in opposite roll control and starts to pull the nose back to the horizon and in doing so the airplane then reacts a second time this time actually going almost 80 degrees nose low the airplane rolls better than 360 degrees and they're in a high-speed dive heading to the ground and again rather than the captain getting on the controls to take command and, and affect the recovery He's trying to coach the first officer through the recovery, and it happens very quickly. This whole event from the start, the onset of it, when the autopilot trips off, is less than 30 seconds. And and rather than the, the captain, who technically should have had more experience and probably should have got on the controls under this dire circumstance, is coaching the first officer through it. And then as the airplane is descending, of course, the captain's telling him, okay, mellow it out, mellow it out. He doesn't want him pulling real hard to pull the nose back to the horizon because if you pull too hard at the speeds that they were at, you're going to break up the airplane. But we found at the very end of this, when you look at the cloud deck, the elevation of the cloud deck, there's a high probability that as the airplane descended out of the base of the cloud deck, which is about 900 to 1,000 feet above the ground, that was probably the first officer's comment at 1557-56, where he, he makes the comment, awe, explicative, where there was the ground, he pulled real hard, and the um, empennage, the tail separated from the airplane because it was found at the very high side or the first part of the wreckage a scatter pattern and then there was the main impact and then the debris was then thrown forward along the flight path in a fan-shaped debris pattern so there was a lot of discussion about whether or not the captain once this event happened should have uh, gotten on the controls and taken command of the airplane to fly it rather than trying to coach the first officer through the recovery given the fact that it was an unusual attitude in instrument meteorological conditions right but i don't i don't know that he would have been able to save the airplane either yeah i mean i, I think at that point it was already uh, uh, lost it was lost they lost actually they lost this airplane way back at 1540 20 minutes earlier by not paying attention and not not being in front of the airplane instead of flying from the back last row of seats as the saying goes yep and because what started this entire event and really changed the course of the way we look at icing certification for all airplanes, but especially transport category airplanes, is the fact that there are no airplanes certified for flight into freezing rain and freezing drizzle. And this was a very thorough and exhaustive investigation. I think it's one of the best reports that the board has put out with regard to all of the research that was put into understanding what is freezing rain and freezing drizzle, what causes it, how extreme it can be in very small temperature changes, how insidious it is, and the fact that in this particular instance, what caused this aircraft to accumulate that ice and then go out of control was the fact that with freezing rain and freezing drizzle, when the airplane was initially in the holding pattern, the ice droplets or the water droplets that the aircraft was flying through were striking the leading edge 
And even though it was still in liquid form, it would run, that is, that it would trail or move a short distance before it actually froze. But it was freezing on the de-ice boot. When they put the flaps down to 15 degrees and it lowered the angle of attack, the water droplets were striking higher on the boot to the point where they were on top of the wing leading edge. And as they ran back, they ran back off the protected surface and froze just behind the protected ice boot. Well, because the boot, even when you inflate it, won't break that ice off that has accumulated, that ice was accumulating, not uniformly, not symmetrically, but in a shark tooth pattern out of the wing tip. And that ice buildup, that little ridge was building up in front of the ailerons. And it disrupted the airflow sufficiently to cause the ailerons to start moving or buffeting on their own. Well, with the autopilot on, that buffeting was being masked and handled by the autopilot until the aerodynamic force reached a value that overpowered the autopilot and caused the autopilot to disengage and the airplane really to snap roll. That's what that was the first event that the first officer ended up responding to. And then, as they say, the rest is history as far as what they were trying to do to recover the airplane. But again, because the ice was still on the airframe, it had a, uh, a cause and effect. You know, the, uh, I remember having a lot of discussion around this accident. And in, in some ways, I remember the pilot training processes that we used uh, with the computer, computer airline industry uses for turbine airplanes being called into question. I don't think they, that was ever run to ground. But how much information do they give these guys about the limitations of the anti-ice system? You know, and how many of them have flown corporate airplanes with hot wings before they came in? Those all have, have uh, effects on your decision-making. Well, we found during the course of the investigation that this was a systemic issue because there had been a number of other similar-type icing events on the smaller ATR-42. This was the ATR-72. It was the first time that this airplane had been involved in an accident. And you could start to see the systemic pattern that had developed with ice and, and the way ice accumulates on this particular airframe. The other thing we found is that American Eagle, like many of the other carriers who were operating the ATRs, the winter ops information that was coming from the manufacturer was not in the form of any kind of mandatory reading. In fact, it was basically a winter ops bulletin, kind of like a cocktail table piece of reading material, and it wasn't required reading by crew members. There is, in a lot of airlines, and you know this, John, a lot of airlines have required reading for flight crew members when it comes to certain operational things that the airline wants the pilots to know. This was not one of those mandated readings, which did, in fact, address some of these icing issues in that particular magazine, which would have been beneficial, possibly, to the crew and their understanding of operating this airplane in icing conditions. I remember when the French came in to visit us, they talked about that at length. And I, I can remember when I was a mechanic working at the airline, 
that I would go oftentimes go into the uh, chief pilot's office and pick up the, the Boeing and the Douglas magazines, which they used to get quite a few of them, and they would find them stacked on their coffee table inside the reception area for the chief pilot's office. And I'd go in and get them for just for reading material. And the French were making that point that in France, in other countries, not necessarily France, but in other countries, they give those books out to all their pilots to read. But in the U.S., none of them are given out to pilots to read. They pick them up if they happen to go into the chief pilot's office, I'm sure. But I think that's lots of good information that's lost because of uh, culture. And one of the other things that came out of that, of course, is the way pilots now are expected to operate turboprop airplanes in icing conditions. The now standard is if you're flying the airplane in icing conditions, you don't want the airplane on the autopilot, that you want to be hand flying that airplane in these icing events so that you can get that tactile feedback and know what is going on with the airplane for the very reason that the autopilot will mask some of those telltale aerodynamic triggers that in this particular instance, we know were happening. We could see it on the flight data recorder that the ailerons were actually moving very rapidly in a, uh, in a motion that uh, if the pilot had had his hands on the control yoke, probably would have felt it, that buffeting going on. But because the autopilot was handling it, there was no, there was no feedback. And we saw the same thing with Colgan. Yes, it's, it's so similar, it's, it's, it's scary. You know, and it's, it always, not always, but oftentimes boils down to the pilots not being, flying from the front of the airplane. They're not in the cockpit mentally. They're somewhere else. And that, that plays on every element of aviation, yeah, right up to the space shuttle, all the way down to the littlest ag airplane or the littlest sport aviation airplane. If you're mentally not connected with your airplane, you're not going to be a good pilot, and you've, it's only a matter of time before something bad's going to happen. You've got to push everything out of your, else out of your mind. You've got to avoid the distractions, and you've got to become you know, one with your machine is a, probably an overused term, but you really got to feel your airplane. You got to be able to feel that the vibrations through the fuselage. You got to be able to feel the yoke. You got to pay attention to the autopilot's turning the yoke. Why is it doing that? You know, we got to change the heading. Why is why is it doing what it's doing? This accident was very poignant, I think, in waking up the industry to not only the different types of ice, but the insidious and significant effects that any kind of icing event has on an aircraft. And um, the way icing is reported in PIREPS, that too was a discussion because what may be described as light to moderate icing by a A320 airline pilot could be severe to extreme in a Piper Cherokee. And, um, you know, we talk about, you know, universal reporting of icing conditions and determining what type of ice is building up, whether it's Rhine, clear, or in this particular instance, yeah, it looked like just a typical icing event 
when you look out the window and you look at the little bolt on the windshield wiper and you see an ice accumulation, you're not analyzing, well, that's rhyme versus clear versus whatever. The fact is it was an icing event. Now, the rate of accumulation could have been a tip-off, but again, there was no discussion by this particular crew as to what was going on with that icing event. And during that seven-minute period, we don't know if it grew from an eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch or a quarter of an inch to a half inch. We don't know because they didn't say anything about it. It was apparent, though, when the engineers at NTSB, in concert with FAA folks and, uh, and the French, started dissecting each parameter of uh, the, the FDR and the aircraft itself, and they could actually see the performance degradation every time they went into a cloud and came out of the cloud, went back into the cloud in the holding pattern when they were in this broken layer. Every time they went in, they picked up more ice. They came out, it didn't melt, and then they'd go back into the icing event, it would pick up more ice. And so it was a cumulative thing. And I mean, these are the kinds of things, these are the kinds of pieces of information and education that is so valuable to flight crews and especially now going into winter op season here in the United States. Yes, and it's probably important to note to our pilots out there that this ice wasn't really building up on the leading edge where you would expect it because the de-icing boots were, were breaking it off, but it was actually accumulating after the de-icing boots, but forward of the flight controls. Yep, it was, it was behind the protected surface. And so those of you who fly airplanes, big or small, that have a uh, uh, ice protection system that includes boots, you have to monitor how effective the boots are with removing the ice, but you also have to make sure that there isn't any sort of ice building up behind those protected surfaces. Yes, that's... Uh... The whole wing isn't isn't protected. It's going to be concerned. You know, I I was just uh, sitting here thinking about all that work that uh, you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago about the uh, work that we did on the icing, and we also did uh, similar work on the seven three seven. And a few podcasts ago, I mentioned that that arguably I could uh, make a case that Jim Hall was the the best chairman that NTSB has has had, and this accident and the U.S. Air accident in Pittsburgh are in that equation that I used to say that because he didn't accept the answers that we had in the beginning. He pushed for more. He pushed for more. Why Why did we get ice? Why didn't the boots work? What was the circumstances? Same thing in Pittsburgh. And that's what it takes to be a good investigator is you got to keep on going and you got to have a management structure that you report to that gives you enough leeway to pursue that and enough resources to pursue it and that's not always the case today exactly john and you bring up a good point and that is that because of the work that the board did on this particular investigation it is definitely worth our listeners going on the ntsb website and pulling down the report and actually reading the report not only to get all of the the other little nuances that we developed during the course of the investigation to understand what was actually happening, but to really understand the atmosphere, the icing, you know, icing events don't happen just in cold weather. If you remember years ago, we had an Embraer coming out of, I don't know, the Bahamas or someplace in, uh, near down south 
Uh, you know, temperature on the ground was 70, 80 degrees. They climbed to altitude. They got into, I believe, to a stratus layer of clouds, picked up some ice, and lost control of the airplane. So these icing events, you know, aren't just limited to, you know, a cold environment when it comes to, well, I took off. It was 80 degrees. There's not, I'm not going to run into icing. Guess what? You will. Uh, especially if you're flying up from Florida in the wintertime and it's warm down there and it's cold in the northeast, you're going to find some icing somewhere. The fact is, is that this report, I think, was very well written to explain all of these little nuances with icing that we didn't know before but are of educational value to everyone that operates an airplane in, um, in potential icing conditions. Yeah, there's a lot here. A lot of decision-making, complacency, distractions. There's a lot of issues in the cockpit separate from the icing that led to this accident. So I hope our listeners pay attention and understand that when they climb into that pilot seat, the rest of the world's got to be behind them, and they need to be just focused on flying the airplane. Well, I appreciate the fact that some, uh, some of the families of the victims that were on that aircraft they've stayed in touch with me over the years and i saw on facebook that they had sent me some messages with regard to the investigation and the team that worked on it and they were very appreciative of what we're able to do not only at the time of the investigation i've been talking with uh, family members of the victims because they they couldn't understand what was being written in the report and so i, I helped provide a bit of an explanation to give them, and again, closure is a bad term. It's not necessarily closure as it is. They got a better understanding, fundamental understanding of what caused the accident, why their loved one was killed. But the biggest point, John, that we see in all these accidents is that these victims did not die in vain. That, yes, this is, this is a sacrifice uh, that they didn't have any control over. The families are having to live with that particular event but through this accident and many other accidents aviation safety has had significant improvements that have you know positively affected the industry so that we don't have these repeated events and and the families have to know that the the work that is done to identify the causes and the contributing factors and form the basis for safety recommendations is the at least the positive that comes out of a very very serious negative and sad event you know 20 years ago somebody told me that we could go about 10 years in the US without having a a commercial airplane 121 uh, crash passenger carrying airplane crash i would have been very doubtful very doubtful but here we are we've done that so it is it is a tribute to everybody in the system and you know back to the families for one quick second most people out there and i know most of our listeners don't realize that as investigators you do get close to the family sometimes and you and I both spend quite a bit of time every year talking to families about past accidents, trying to give them any updates on any information, uh, sometimes just rehashing what we've already talked to them about, but giving them a little level of comfort in uh, understanding and all of that. And there's a few other former investigators that also do it, but not very many. So I just wanted to say that, that 
you are uh, oftentimes way out with the families. I was very close to the families as well. And you and I have spent time together. We, we went down to Miami and spent time uh, with the Value Jet families and things like that. They appreciate the fact that, you know, we still have an interest after all these years. I do. I think about them all the time. Why? Because a lot of times I'm speaking about them in safety presentations so that that's my way of honoring their memory is that not talking about the negative, but talking about the positives that, you know, improved aviation. And, and I think that's, that really is a tribute to them that, you know, that was a, a sacrifice for those families, but that sacrifice is improving safety and, and, you know, preventing additional accidents from occurring. So I've made some close friends with, uh, with these family members just because over the years I've stayed in touch and they've stayed in touch with me. Well, we've finished that segment on that and uh, we'll move on to another program here next week. But before we go, I'd like to just remind everybody of Emco Insurance Company rewards safe pilots for recurrent training. All right, new ratings, participating in fast team events, and you can save 5% on your insurance by mentioning that you've been listening to, to our podcast. You can give them a call anytime at 888-879-0389, or you can visit their website, vemco.com backslash flight safety, and you can profit from just listening to our podcast. But really what I want you to do is profit from what we say. You know, we talk today about distractions and complacency. Please pay attention if you go flying. You know, we don't want to lose any listeners. That's right. Keep listening to us and keep paying attention and don't make these foolish mistakes that we see so many people making. So with that, Greg, I'll let you have the last word. Well, thank you, John. It's always great. We're still under our COVID restrictions, so I haven't been able to get in the studio with, but I feel it coming, John. I feel the fact that we might be able to get into the same studio at the same time to do a podcast. And I think it's going to happen before the end of the year. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. But I always appreciate talking to you about these accidents. And I know that the listeners appreciate it because they've been sending us emails, not only giving us feedback on the shows that we've done and that they're listening to, but giving us suggestions for future shows. So we really appreciate it. Keep the emails coming. You can contact us at flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. We appreciate the good, the bad, and the ugly. How can we make it better? What do you want to hear? Do we do enough? Should we do more? Should we do less? We appreciate all of that feedback. So please let us know what you think. And John, I know that you, as well as I, we are practicing safe flying. That is, on the airlines, we are doing what we can to protect ourselves and our fellow passengers when we fly. But I know that uh, our listening audience, you're getting back into uh, the commercial aviation flying, especially around the holidays. Is it safe? There's a lot of discussion. And as long as you maintain or at least practice those universal precautions that medical personnel are taught from day one in med school, and that is wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, wear your mask, 
social distance, do all of those things, and you do it religiously, then, you know, you will be operating at the highest levels of safety under the current circumstances. So for all of you who are listening, please, please take care of yourself, practice safe flying, and if you are flying yourself, then fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.